copy of God's Word and make your way to Ephesians chapter 6. Changing goodness, your amazing grace. Even though things may not be the way we want them to be, you've been good to us. And whatever the set of circumstances are that we face today, things are way better than we deserve. We love you for it, we praise you for it, we bless you for it. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom you have poured out all of these gracious benefits toward us. In his name we pray that you will help us to look into the perfect law of liberty today and not be forgetful hearers but doers of the work, that we may be blessed in all of our ways. Cause us to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Draw to yourself those who should be saved. Add to the church those who are being saved. And that Christ be exalted as the word is explained, we pray. The church said amen. If you turn to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4 is our study for today. Last week we looked at verses 1 through 3. Address the biblical role of Christian children. Today I want to look at verse 4. It addresses the biblical role of Christian parents. We read all four verses for context. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. That it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction 
of the Lord. Amen. God's word, you may be seated. I want to, again, label the message, the biblical role of Christian children, parents, biblical role of Christian parents. I moved out on my own the week I turned 18. I moved into that first apartment with a bed, a couch, and a TV. I would add furniture along the way. And when I could stash money, save up money, I slowly furnished this little apartment. This was not my thing. I took counsel from others, and when I would ask, family and friends would often tell me, you need to go check out this store, Ikea. It's a furniture store. And they got modern stuff. It's not that expensive. You should go check it out. And I heard this over and over again. Saw some of the commercials, received a few of their advertisements. One day I made my pilgrimage to Ikea Furniture Store. It was a Saturday. I remember the parking lot was jam-packed. The showroom was enormous. There were people everywhere. And even though this is not my thing, I... I got caught up, picking out this and that and the other that I thought would fit in my little apartment and, of course, fit my budget. When I began to finally select and prepare to purchase these things, I was in for a rude awakening. Did you know, IKEA does not sell furniture. They sell boxes with pieces of furniture <laughs> in it. You have to take it home. And with these little tools and instructions and whatnot, you had to put the furniture pieces together. Some of those would-be pieces of furniture never became what they were intended to be. <laughs> and those that did make it required time, labor, strength, patience, and determination before the pieces that were in the box anywhere near matched the picture outside the box. A pregnant woman goes to the hospital to deliver a child. When the parents leave the hospital with this newborn baby, they leave with raw material, not a finished product. It will take time, labor, strength.
strength, patience, determination. And as the context of our passage suggests, the Holy Ghost. Before the raw material of infancy becomes the finished product of adulthood. You buy a box, you take it home, you open it up, and the instructions are inside to show you how to put together the product. Long before persons ever become parents, there is the instruction manual for raising children that is already available. It's called the Word of God. The Bible has a lot of important things to say about raising children. But if I was to summarize by pointing you to just one verse concerning how parents should raise children, if I could only give you one, it would be Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Chapter 5, verse 17 of Ephesians says, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. The instructions Paul gives in the following verses about husbands and wives, parents and children, employees and employers, all address the will of the Lord concerning your family life and your work life. Specifically, Ephesians 6 verse 4 teaches us that it is the Lord's will that parents bring up their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Nothing exotic about this text. The message of the text is this. It is the Lord's will that parents bring up their children in the discipline and instruction of of the Lord. All of these specific instructions fit under the larger umbrella of chapter 5, verse 21, where Paul exhorts every believer in the church to be submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Many people use chapter 5, verse 21 as a trump card when they get into the specific instructions and, and run into instructions they don't like when we don't like some of these specific instructions, we go back to chapter 5, verse 21, it says, but remember, we all are to submit to one another. That's the truth, but though this call to submit to one another in chapter 5, verse 21 is mutual, it's not symmetrical. We cannot submit to one another at the same time in the exact same way. That would be chaos, not order. In fact, the word translated submitting was a military term that described how a soldier would line up 
under the authority of a commanding officer. And the very nature of the term itself suggests that in these relationships, someone leads and someone follows. This is the beautiful mystery of the Christian church. If parents and children who have repented of their sins and run to the cross and trusted Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, if believing parents and believing children are sitting with each other during the observation of the Lord's Supper, when, when that parent passes the elements to the child, if they are in Christ, it is not a mother or father passing elements to a son or daughter. It is a brother or sister in Christ passing elements to another brother or sister in Christ. In Christ, we are one. But the God who has made us one in Christ has established order in the home. So that at the end of chapter 5, we'll see that wives are to submit to their own husbands and husbands are to love their wives as Christ loves the church. And now we see that children are to obey and honor their parents and parents are to bring up their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. John Wilmot, the Earl of Rochester, is noted for saying, before I was married, I had three theories about parenting. Now I have three children and no theories. Can you relate to that? This is why we must not forget that all of these instructions concerning how we treat one another at home and at work are empowered by the exhortation of chapter 5, verse 18, that bids us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. As a parent, you may be good, responsible, loving, protective parents, but you cannot carry out the will of God described here in chapter 6, verse 4. If you have not run to the cross, repenting of your sins and throwing yourself on the mercy of God poured out by the blood of Jesus. And, and just being a Christian is not enough. You must submit to the enabling help of the Holy Spirit. You cannot carry out the will of God as a parent in your own wisdom or strength or resources. You need the Holy Spirit's help to be a godly parent. And the sign of a parent that is doing it God's way is that the text says you will not provoke your children to anger, but you will bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Let me flesh that out. The duty of the parents here then is threefold. Consider first of all the parents' God-given role. The parents' God-given role. first word of verse 4 is the word fathers. And in the Greek, that word means fathers. There's nothing underneath the surface there, mysterious. 
In verse 1, children are commanded to obey their parents, plural, referring to both mother and father. And then in verse 2, Paul is explicit that children are to honor their father and mother. Now in verse 4, he addresses fathers with the same Greek word used in verse 2 to refer to fathers. Paul directly addresses the fathers of the church. But what is addressed to fathers applies to mothers and fathers. The fact that Paul addresses fathers does not in any way dishonor or diminish the dignity of motherhood. In fact, the text is a reminder of how our culture needs to recover the dignity of motherhood. Feminists, both professing Christians and non-Christians these days, disregard so much of what Scripture says to and about women as if the Word of God would hold women back from being all that they can be. And they act as if the Bible just would have women, they say, just sit in a house and have children. But the emphasis of Scripture is not on a mother having children. But there is great and repeated and godly emphasis on the mother's role of rearing children, raising children, nurturing children. And the Bible does not apologize for the high calling God has given mothers in nurturing children. Karen Hughes began her professional work life with George W. Bush in 1994 when she led his campaign to become governor of Texas. They worked together right to the White House where in 2001 and 2002, she was special counsel to the president. Some claim that he made up a role so that he could work close to this woman who had been a great advisor of his over the years. The Dallas Morning News called Karen Hughes the most powerful woman to ever work in the White House. That's why headlines were shocked. When in 2002, she resigned from her White House job, saying her husband and her son were homesick and could not adjust to life in Washington, D.C., and they needed to go back to Texas so that her son could spend his, his high school years with his other siblings and family and friends and in a more stable environment in their home in Texas. Many women who praise Karen Hughes for making progress for the women's movement with her role in the White House, came back and shunned her for setting women's rights back by leaving this high office to go home and be a mother. But she defended her decision, eventually writing a book, making her case that 
not even working in a powerful role in the White House is more honorable than the privilege God gives women to raise and nurture and develop children. So what, what Paul says here, address the fathers, applies to mothers and fathers, and how much more does this apply in the day and time we live in where the most generous Statistics tell us that half of the children in America are raised in single-parent homes, and of course, the vast majority of those single-parent homes are led by women. How much more does this affirmation need to be made of the dignity of motherhood where so many mothers in the culture we live in must be mama and daddy at the same time? There is a whole sermon by itself there to be preached. But suffice it here for me to offer a word of encouragement to single mothers by saying that God is the God of Hagar. Read Genesis 16. God promised Abraham that he would have a son, and from his son he'd have many children and all the families of the world to be blessed from his seed. And Abraham was old, his wife was barren, and he didn't have one son, much less many sons. And his wife Sarah decides that they better, you know, help God out before it's too late. She gave Abraham her maid, Hagar, to marry. And he had a child with Hagar. But upon having this child, Sarah, the wife's contempt for Hagar, grew. And she mistreated Hagar, so much so that in fear, Hagar took her child and fled out in the woods by a river. Read Genesis 16, because while she is hiding, the Bible says, in the language of the text, that the angel of the Lord found her and called her by name, Hagar. Where did you come from and where are you going? She says, I'm running and hiding from my mistress, Sarah. The angel of the Lord said, no, 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 no. Go back and submit to your mistress. You in a bad situation, you didn't ask for this, you being treated unfairly, but the angel of the Lord said, go back and submit. But when you go back, know the Lord, seeing your situation. And from this child that you had under these difficult circumstances, God is going to make many great nations. In fact, God said, name the child Ishmael. I wish I had Bible readers here. Because all of the Arab nations in the world today are the fulfillment of God's promise to a single mother. And the Bible says 
that she didn't know the name of this God who was speaking to her. So she gave him a name. And the name she gave him, Genesis 16, verse 13, is this, the God who sees me. She says, I'm, I'm naming him this for this reason, that here I have seen the God who looks out for me. I repeat, God is the God of Hagar. He sees, he cares, and he will take care of you. Again, what is addressed to fathers applies to mothers and fathers, but don't totally disregard the fact that the text addresses fathers. It addresses fathers possibly because we who are fathers, God determined, more need direct reminders of our parental responsibilities than mothers do. And indeed, the role fathers have is a divine responsibility. The fact that Paul addresses fathers here affirms afresh again the, the biblical principle of male headship in the home. This is not the fact that the, 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 the man is the warlord of the house. It is that somebody has to lead, and in God's divine ordering, he has so designed that the father, husband, is to lead. And God forbid that God catches us, brothers, if we have gone AWOL on the assignment he has given us. God has given the parents authority over the children in the home. But we must be careful, listen to me, that we don't, you know, too often we want to assert our rights without accepting our responsibilities. And the authority, divine authority, always comes with divine accountability. We who are parents will have to answer to God for how we carry out the role he has given us in our children's lives. There is the parents' God-given role, but then would you notice with me the parents' God-given restriction. The parents' God-given restriction. There are two commands in verse 4. There is a prohibition and then an exhortation. The first command is a prohibition. It's a ban. It's a restriction. Before Paul tells us what to do, he first says, let me tell you what not to do. What not to do. Do not provoke your children to anger. Do not arouse your children to anger. Do not incite your children to anger. Do not lead your children to anger. Do not instigate your children to anger. This call for self-restraint is the reason I believe exegetically the text is addressed to fathers. It's not to diss the mothers. It's to make a point. What we find here in the fact that fathers are called to practice self-restraint 
is a clear picture of the radical and revolutionary nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The culture of Ephesus, which was a part of the Roman Empire, and to which Paul wrote this letter, lived under the law, which was called, the Roman law called Patria Potestas. It means the power of the Father. And the father of the, uh, you can Google it, look it up. It'll be an interesting read. I can just summarize it for you. In the Roman Empire, the power of the father over the children was absolute. When the child was born, the child would be laid at the father's feet. And if the child was accepted by the father, he would pick the child up. If, if not, if he walked away and, and didn't pick the child up, the child would become, would either be sold into slavery or put to death. He had absolute power over the child. Even into adulthood, whatever the child owned actually belonged to the father. The child itself was considered the property of the father. You, you didn't fall in love and get married. The father chose who you were going to marry. And not necessarily for your best interest, but for the estate of the family. And if he so decided, he could force divorce on adult children. The fathers in this Roman law even had the right to carry out capital punishment on their children. Literally, the father in the culture of that day had the power of life and death over their children. But here Paul, speaking the gospel into that culture, reminding earthly fathers that they got an answer to a heavenly father. And he calls for self-restraint. We see it not just in the fact that he commands parents to practice self-restraint, but even notice how he addresses the children as children. Over the week so ago, reading up on this text, I read a correspondence, ancient correspondence with a husband who was away on business and discovered that his wife was pregnant. And he acknowledged the news that she was pregnant and basically said the equivalent of good luck with that. And stated that if the child is a male, he is mine. If it is a daughter, put her to death. The ancient Near East was a man's world. Daughters were not, were not considered important because they didn't carry on the family name or the family line. But here Paul's saying here that children, male and female, deserve dignity and equality and respect. Church, we don't need to find no new way to change the culture. Just lift the gospel up. Here, Paul speaks into this culture and says, do not provoke your children to anger. Now, before I talk about what that means, let me be clear about what that does not mean. That does not mean, church, don't ever make your children angry. Let me be very clear. If you don't, parents, if you don't ever make your children angry, you ain't doing it right. You ain't doing something right. 
What Paul is saying here is do not provoke your children to anger intentionally. Do not provoke your children to anger unnecessarily. Do not provoke your children to anger arbitrarily. What is he talking about here? There's a lot of places people go with this text, but let me tell you what, I, what, what the core of this is all about. He is talking about how parents discipline children. The text is calling for self-restraint on parents as you discipline your children. And if you don't practice self-restraint in the discipline of children, he is saying, you will provoke your children to anger. How does that happen? Five ways. I, I wish I had time to flesh them all out. Let me just list them for you. First of all, a lack of discipline will provoke children to anger. It's not love to let kids have their own way. In fact, it communicates the direct opposite to them. A lack of discipline will provoke children to anger. Unfair discipline will provoke children to anger. Inconsistent discipline will provoke children to anger. Unexplained discipline will provoke children to anger. And fifthly, and I think this is the heart of the text, excessive discipline will provoke children to anger. I think that's really the burden of this prohibition. It is a call for self-restraint so that you don't excessively discipline your children. Now, let me be clear what side I'm on. I did not grow up in a timeout house. I didn't grow up in one of them houses. I grew up in a house where we had names for the belts and all that stuff. <laughs> it, it is unbiblical to advise parents not to discipline their children. But I think the, literally what this prohibition is saying is do not abuse your children. This is a prohibition, uh, it should go without saying, of sexual abuse. But the focus here, I think, is against physical abuse. Do not physically abuse your children in the name of discipline. But you do know that you can also abuse children without putting your hands on them. I think do not provoke your children that to anger is also a warning against verbal abuse of children. In fact, you can be grown and on your own with your own family and still suffer emotional abuse from manipulative parents who keep trying to control their children's lives. 
Paul says, do not provoke your children to anger. If you're taking notes, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4 is paralleled by Colossians chapter 3, verse 21. Ephesians 6 and 4 gives a prohibition and an exhortation. Colossians 3.21 gives a prohibition and a reason. Colossians 3.21 says, fathers, do not provoke your children, listen to this, lest they become discouraged. You know what that means? If you don't practice self-restraint, you can get to a place with your children where they give up, where they lose heart, where they stop trying. I excessive discipline can get your children to a place where, where they won't listen to you at all. In a real sense, Paul is saying that if, if you don't practice self-restraint with your children, you can push them to a place where they will stop practicing self-restraint with you. And they will give up trying to heed you or obey you. On many occasions, too many to count, I remember my father asking people to pray for him as he raised me. And he would say, pray for me because I'm, I'm trying to raise. He says, he says, Raising HB is like trying to develop a champion horse. And when I first heard that, you know, all I could think is, did he just call me a horse? <laughs> One day I heard, I heard the entire statement out, and I, I, I understood it later. He said, pray for me because raising Junior... It's like trying to develop a champion horse. Here was his next statement. I'm trying to discipline his will without breaking his spirit. This is the call that every pa parent has. You're trying to raise champion children. And you've got to practice self-restraint in that process so that while you discipline the will, you don't break the spirit of your children so that they just won't run. There is the God-given role of parents. There is the God-given restriction to parents. Consider with me the God-given responsibility. Parents, God-given responsibility. There are two commands in the text. The first is a prohibition. Do not provoke your children to anger. The second is an exhortation. But bring them up in the instruction and discipline of the Lord. Wow. What blows me away about this exhortation about how to raise children is that it's a line, not a list. Go to the bookstore. Go to the library. You'll find all of these resources with all these techniques and theories about how to raise children. People getting rich. Trying to tell others how to raise children. Just any day this week, just randomly turn on a talk show. Odds are, 
You got some self-proclaimed expert telling you what you need to do, raise your children. And there's no proof that they can raise an alley cat. And they got answers for everybody about how to raise children. But here, Paul does not address techniques and theories and best practices. He just lays on the shoulder of us parents our, our God-given responsibility in the lives of our children. Listen to me, church. Everything is theological. Everything is theological. The, the formal definition of theology Theology proper is the, is the study of the character and nature and ways of God. But, but more broadly, theology is, is just the human expression of his understanding of God. And I contend that everything is theological. This is why you, we can't stand back and let children figure it out. There's there's a warfare over truth. M music is not just music. Listen to the music. It's theology. The books you read, the, the, the movies, the television shows, there are truth claims. There are philosophies about life. There's ideas about how to treat people. There's theories about the future. There are even statements about God and family. Everywhere our children turn, the world is trying to teach them theology. And what Paul is saying is, for real, I believe my job as your pastor is to be the resident theologian of the church, to teach you the truth. And what Paul is saying here is that that's the role of every parent in the home. You are to be the resident theologian in the house to point your children to the truth. You are to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. On one hand, it means we have a, a personal responsibility as parents. Underline this in your Bible. God won't get mad. The, the verb that states the, the responsibility we have as parents is, is very simple, but it's important. Bring them up. They won't get there by themselves. You got to bring them up. There's another implication of that verb. Hold on to your pew. It's not the government's job to raise our children. It's not the school's job to raise our children. It's not the church's job to raise our children. God says to us as parents, bring them up. This verb is used twice in the New Testament. Both times by Paul, both times in Ephesians, both times in these household instructions. In chapter 5, verse 29, Paul says, no, no man ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes his own body. That word nourish is our word here, bringing them up. 
this is significant, the fact that these are the only two places this verb is used, it's significant in that Paul uses it in reference to marriage before he uses it in reference to children. As I said, half the children are raised in single-parent homes. But I believe for recovery, revival, and reformation in our culture, we've got to go back to the Word of God. And it is as simple and as difficult as this, that God has so ordered the family that marriage is to come before children. And we're to take our vows in marriage all the more seriously for the sake of children. And, and, and there are so many important things to do in the life of the children. But I want to say maybe the best thing that can happen in a child's life is to be raised in a home where it's obvious that his mama loves his daddy and his daddy loves his mama. So the text says, nourish them. Speaking the term in reference to marriage before children, but also in chapter 5, verse 29, when that verb is used, Paul is saying to us, brothers, the same way you take care of your own body and its physical needs, you should care for your wife. And now the same word is used here where he addresses fathers and says to fathers, bring them up. I think it is irresponsible then not to consider that Ephesians 6 and 4 is a reminder to us as fathers that we have a God-given responsibility to financially care for our children. Whatever the relationship is with mama, that duty don't change from God. First Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, says this. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for the members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. There are men in jail today who committed crimes that they will acknowledge they commit and they are unashamed and unrepentant. And they'll, they'll tell you. I had to do what I needed to do to take care of my kids. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 1 Timothy chapter 5 verse 8 says that if an unbeliever that don't know the Lord got enough instinct to take care of his kids, you should not allow a man in church to claim he's a Christian if he doesn't care for his own children. Bring them up. In chapter 5, verse 29, I, I got to rush, but also note this. In chapter 5, verse 29, when he says nourish them, he also says cherish them. And I think that's also important in parenting. That Martin Luther says, don't spare the rod, but every now and then they need to get an apple as well. Not only must there be Godly chastisement, but there needs to be personal encouragement. There's a personal responsibility to bring them up, but there's a spiritual responsibility to bring them up. How are you to bring them up? Not just any kind of way. You're to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. William Hendricks says, this is the heart of, of, of 
parental nurturing to bring the heart of the child and lead it to the heart of the Savior. Children are not just to be brought up any kind of way. They are to be brought up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Or to, or to put it in the words of Proverbs 22, verse 6, yes? Bring up a child in the way that he should go. And even when he is old, he will not depart. We live in a culture where every every time something not right in people's life, it seems like we live in a society of victims and the easiest target is parents. We just blame our parents for what wasn't right in our life. But if you read Proverbs, this same book of Proverbs that says bring up a child also is very clear that you can do everything you know to do and still raise a fool if God don't help you. So what the text is saying when it says raise, bring up a child in the way that she go and when he's old and not depart. It's not saying that if you do right, your, your children will never mess up or go astray. The, the Bible is saying while you have control of your children, you need to do everything you can to pour truth in them, pour wisdom in them, pour scripture in them, pour the gospel in them, pour a love for God in them so that even if they go out and waste their life, you poured so much in, there's still enough in there for God to use to pull them back to the right path. So bring them up in discipline of the Lord. That word discipline, same word used in Hebrews 12 to say that God chastises his children because he loves us. And the word instruction means to place in the mind. So discipline, I believe, means that you should bring them up with right behavior and then instruction means bring them up with right beliefs. You got to discipline their behavior and teach their minds the truth. Listen, parenting is simply the business of losing control. I mean, when children are so little, you're in control of their lives, and they want it that way. They don't want to take a step without you. They, they just want totally dependent. But as time goes by, that changes. I've been, I've been saying all day, I got this, you know, I got these weird, two weird creatures in my house. <laughs> and I'm struggling with this theologically because the Bible is clear. God makes full-grown adults. Adam and Eve were full-grown adults. God makes adults. God makes children. I don't know who makes teenagers. I, it's not in the scripture. Teenage, I don't know. I don't know. But inevitably, the, that little children are growing to a place where, they, where you are no longer in control. 
And you got to watch it happen in front of you. And what Paul is saying is that while they are under your control, you're to pour truth in their minds and hearts. Pour in truth and gospel and scripture so that, if I can say it this way, so that there's enough in them for God to keep working in their hearts when you can no longer work on their behinds. Can I say it that way I read my, draw my mind to say it? Bring them up in the discipline and instruction. Here's the last phrase, and I'm through. Of the Lord. Parents, our children need us to spend time with them. They need us to provide for them. They need words of encouragement. They need godly discipline. They need a good education. They need our support. But more than anything, they need the Lord. It's not, it's not merely our responsibility to make sure they have a good career when they get up old. We need to point them to the Lord. We're not always going to be there. And we can't fix family and children and marriage and career for them. We will not always be there. So, so you got to do everything you can to make sure that when you got to take your hands off of them, you are putting them in the hands of the Lord. Your, your child's eternal destiny is not under your control. That, that's God's business. But you got to do everything you can to point them to the Lord. You can make sure their feet are in the house of God regularly and they still go astray, but don't worry about that. It ain't too late for God. God can get them. In the early church, there was a godly mother who had wicked son. And she kept praying for his salvation and it seemed like the, the more she prayed, the worse he got. And um, one day he announced to his mama he was moving to Rome. And she doubled up her prayers. Lord, don't let him go to Rome. He having trouble in this environment. If he go to Rome, he'll only get further away from you. Lord, save him. Don't let him go to Rome. God answered her prayer and didn't answer her prayer at the same time. 
the boy went to Rome. And God saved them in Rome. And church history knows that wicked boy who went to Rome as St. Augustine, the Bishop of Rome. If you do all you can, God will do all you can't. Fathers, Mothers, do not provoke your children to anger. But you bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I'm finished. God be praised for his word.